All right, we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10. We're going to read through verse 13. Hear God's word. (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. All right, so when you, when you read through Ephesians, and we've been in Ephesians for like three years now. Now, I'm not one of those who's preached on it just straight through for three years. We, we've taken a lot of breaks. We've broken it up into kind of various sections. But let me give you a review of, of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 2 paint this beautiful doctrine of salvation, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, and that through that salvation, God gives us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It is so good. And then, and then after about halfway through chapter 2, Paul begins to apply those blessings and that salvation to the life of the church. And so for chapters 2, 3, and into 4, he's talking about life in the church, unity in the church, our, our structure as a church, and how these blessings play out amongst God's people. Then he gets really practical into your daily individual life. He talks about the old life and the new life. And he applies that old life and new life and the Spirit's work in your life into your, your, your various relationships and the various aspects of your life. Your work life, your parenting, your role as a child, your marriage, your place in this world. And then we get to chapter 6, in the last half of chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10, where it says, finally, he's rounding the corner to close the book out. And so here's the question. Is Paul changing the subject by beginning to talk about spiritual warfare? And that is what he is talking about, spiritual warfare. But is he, is he no longer talking about your everyday life? He's been talking about parenting and work and marriage, these things that take up our 9 to 5 and our 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night. These are, this is everyday life. Is this a totally new subject? Is he talking about a completely different domain when he talks about spiritual warfare? The answer is no. Actually, what he's doing is he's giving you the behind the scenes of what is going on behind all of that daily life. He is summarizing what has been happening in your life You know, what I said about marriage and family and work, the new life of the Christian, he says, the life of the church, that is the place of spiritual warfare. That that is the place of spiritual warfare. That you don't war with your kids or with your spouse, although sometimes it may feel like that. You're not warring with your, your, your customers or with your employees or with those who work with you. You are warring in all of those places against spiritual forces, You're not at war against your kids or against your spouse. You're at war for your kids and for your spouse, for your holiness, for your sexual faithfulness, for your very life. And in this war, you are up against an axis of evil, an axis of evil. Let me see if I can describe it this way 
in a kind of a real life setting that there is multiple components in this warfare that are fighting against us. There's a, there's a clip of a TV crew I saw a couple years ago of a man um, where the TV crew goes to interview a photographer and this photographer had, had particularly specialized in spending time in photographing areas around Skid Row in Los Angeles, California. A notoriously impoverished an awful area in LA, and this photographer would seek to get a, give an up close and a view and personal look at the lives of people who lived there. He speaks to and shares uh, the lives and puts it in living color the lives of pimps and prostitutes, of addicts and criminals, of conmen and gang members. And the photographer has spent countless hours looking to uh, and talking with those who are seeking to engage with this part of LA, asking the question, how do we fix the problems that are here? The problem of homelessness in this area. And the backdrop of the interview is just these tent cities of homeless people in LA. And so the interview goes on with this TV crew and they ask this photographer and they ask this, what is it that these people need? And here's what the photographer said and articulates the complexity of fallenness in this world. He said this, you would think that the answer is just to provide homes for all of these folks. But what I am finding is that even if you give them a home, that won't do it. Why? Well, because behind their homelessness is most often some sort of addiction. And so we, but then we also can't just simply address their addiction because often behind their addiction is mental health issues. And then when you peel back the layer even further, behind the mental health issues is often some form of childhood trauma. The photographer concluded this, and so honestly, of all the people who come down here, we all have our plans and our strategies to try to fix it, but in reality, no one knows what to do. The Bible is honest about that kind of dire strait that we are in. That in this seeming, it is honest about this seemingly hopeless and despairing situation that there is a complexity to the ills of this world. That it's not just a matter of, oh, hey, that these individuals have sinned or done something wrong. But no, there's actually whole systems around their sin. Yes, they've individuals have sinned. Yes, they follow their flesh, but there's also sin behind that sin. There's the sin of others. There's all these structures that have gone around this. And what the Bible says is that what the complexity of the issues that we face in this world are there because of an axis of evil. Remember George Bush after 9-11, that he had a, a group of, of countries that, that, that sponsored terrorism, and he caused them the axis of evil. But we face a far worse axis of evil. Paul's actually already talked about this in, earlier on in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he said this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. That's one aspect, the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what is the axis? The axis is this, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, let me just very briefly say what this is. The world are the systems the cultures, the organizations and institutions that are centered around this animating elementary principle, anything but God and against God. That's how we defined it when I went through this a number of years ago in Ephesians chapter 2. So that's the world. 
These systems and cultures and, and organizations and institutes that are against God. But then what's the flesh? The flesh is us. It is your animating heart desire that elevates the self and the self's desires over God. The self-will over the will of God. We've addressed both of those in the past, but behind both the world and the flesh, tickling their fancies and engaging them is a ruler. There is a Pied Piper who intelligently and strategically and cunningly works through our flesh and the systems of this world to further his evil purposes in this world. The world and the flesh are the piano, and the devil is the pianist. Or perhaps the metaphor could go further. The world and the flesh are the symphonic instruments. The demons are the symphony players, and the, and the Satan is the composer. The composer is the devil, and symphony is playing a song that we could simply called, call evil. That's the rhythm that they play to. So we're going to spend the next couple of weeks kind of giving an overview of spiritual warfare. Here's where we're going to go over the course of three weeks. First, this morning is I'm going to give you kind of a cosmic look, a 10,000-foot look at this battle, this cosmic battle between the empire of evil, this axis of evil, and us, God's church. Then next week, we're going to look at the schemes of the devil, how it plays out in your daily life and in your own individual life, the temptations of the evil one in your world, in your marriage, in your family, in your work. And then I'm going to do one week in which we're going to give an overview of what it looks like to stand, be strong in the Lord. All right? And then for the rest of the summer, we're going, to, we're going to go into the armor of God. And each week, we're going to look at the various aspects that God gives us so that we may stand firm. But this week... This week, we need to understand the evil empire, the axis of evil. So I'm going to do it under this heading, these headings. First, we're going to look at the realm of evil, the realm of evil. We've got to understand what we're up against, and there is a whole realm of evil. Paul, we're going to focus primarily this morning simply on verse 12, verse 12. And Paul says this, that our, our, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but instead against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, I need to do some brief explanation, some biblical background, some teaching, and then we can get to the preaching. Let me give you an explanation. Here's what we know from the Bible about the devil and the evil forces are right against us. In Isaiah 14, verse 14, we learned that Satan, will, he had said this, I will ascend and I will be the most high. That God cast him out of heavens and out of his presence because Satan, who is a creation of God, he is not, a, uh, he is not an anti-God in the sense that he is not a God who is just an equal force against God, but he is a created being who is created to worship and serve God, but he rejected that purpose and instead sought to usurp God's authority and therefore committed cosmic treason against the Lord's. We further learn in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that Jesus himself says from his own mouth that he saw Satan fell from heaven like lightning, that he was cast out. And then we're told in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, a couple things. The first is this, that Satan was an angel created to worship God, but then second, that Satan, when he was cast out, that there were all forms of other angels that followed him and went with him. A whole horde, an army of angels that went with him that we know either as evil spirits or as demons. 
And then we know from both John chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 2 that in view of the fall of mankind, the evil one has, until the work of Christ, has functioned as the ruler of this world. So now Satan has established a kingdom of evil in this world. There is a, and what we see actually with this kingdom of evil, with these other fallen angels, these evil spirits and these demons, that there is actually a hierarchy and a structure. That language there, the reason why Paul gives us those, um, those four descriptions of this evil empire, authorities, rulers, cosmic powers, evil spirits or forces, that we're not entirely sure how that hierarchy works, but these are not synonyms. That these are all the hosts of the evil kingdom. You see, just as the, the scriptures describes God's angelic hosts of heaven, his army, his host, that there's any, this, this holy angelic realm that rightly serves God and his kingdom. In the same way, there is an evil angelic realm that has a structure and a hierarchy to it. They go under the names of authorities and rulers and powers and forces. All right, so to summarize, in case that was all too quickly, let me just briefly summarize. First is this, Satan is a fallen angel who rejected God, desiring to rule in place of God. Second, Satan had many angels who followed him. And third, Satan seeks to rule as an invisible spiritual force through a kingdom structure that involves evil authorities, rulers, forces that serve his purposes in this world. And I say all that, that this is happening in a parallel realm, a spiritual realm. And what Paul is saying is that behind what you see, the flesh and blood, what happens in your daily life, the evil things in this world, behind that is a spiritual and invisible world that is evil, it's intelligent, and it is, it is structured for action. Now, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, what he's saying there is that it's not saying that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but he's saying that we don't only wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, Paul had to wrestle with flesh and blood. The man was beaten four times. He was criticized by flesh and blood enemies. He was imprisoned by flesh and blood people. It was our actual real prison that he sat in. He was abandoned by flesh and blood friends. So it's not saying that we don't have real enemies and difficulties out there in the world that are physical and visible. But what he's saying is that there's something more going on. That's not only what we're up against. Paul's saying that when you look at the world... When you look at war, when you look at poverty, when you look at injustice, when you look at all the terrible things that are happening out there and often in here, he's saying that there's something that goes beyond merely the natural. That there's a spiritual and there's a supernatural beyond the human. There's something that goes beyond the scientifically analyzable. That there's something that is cosmic and supernatural. There's something that is transcendent. That you can only sense what's going on. And under this material world, there are spiritual powers, not visible, but no less real. Now, what exactly are we talking about with these cosmic powers and rulers and spiritual forces? We are not talking about goblins and red pajamas. We're talking about spiritual forces, but they're moving with and in and under the things of this world. 
The world that we talked about and described earlier, those organizations and institutions, the building blocks of any particular culture, the organizing structures of any and every society, and the details of our individual and daily lives that there is a spiritual force at work there. Let me give you an example of this. The evil one was working behind what was going on with the death of Christ. So for example, behind Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Pharisees and the Mon, behind the political structures, that's Herod and Pilate. Behind the religious structures, that's Caiaphas and the priests. Behind the social structures, that's the mob. And behind economic concerns, the 30 pieces of silver given to Judas, was an intelligent force of evil that colluded using all the things of the world and using the things of our flesh in order to crucify the Lord of glory. That there was a spiritual battle going on there. And it is against those forces, those structures of evil working behind the scenes that you are called to wrestle against. Little old you, who can barely get to work on time. And so here's the question. How do you respond to that? What's your response to that idea that there is this spiritual realm out there that you cannot see, but that is, the Bible says is living and active? C.S. Lewis has a very famous quote where he says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You, know, you see, in many cultures of the world, they have no problem believing in a spiritual world, right? In fact, for most of human history... For most, of, most cultures outside of the West, Africa, India, South America, pow, spiritual powers are assumed and they're part of the everyday fabric of your life. Even in America, there are certain segments of the culture, right, and even the American church that is quite obsessed with talking about the demonic in the spiritual world. They blame everything on the demonic. They believe the devil made them do it. And they draw everything in black and white associations with cultural structures and movement with the demonic. Oh, those are just demonic people. Oh, that political party is just demonic. But this is too, this is too easy and too broad a brush. There can be a tendency to exaggerate Satan, Satan and his minions as if he is behind every tree. But then, but though my, my, my read on, my, on this church... And that's part of the reason why you have a local pastor is to read you as a church. My read on this church is that we would tend to go in the other direction. At least particularly for those of you who are younger. That we would make too little of the spiritual realm and the evil forces that are at work. You see, if you grew up in America and you're a fairly well-educated person, you've been highly affected without even knowing it by the enlightenment belief that everything in the world has a natural and scientific cause and explanation. If something appears to be evil, there is an explanation to it or for it that can be measured. So for example, when a mass murderer shoots up a school, we seek to explain evil we see in the world or experience in ourselves by looking to what? What do we say? We blame it on the social systems. And it was the family system or it was the bad brain chemistry. In other words, it has a biological root. It has some psychological root or sociological root, or it may have some combination of these things. In other words, the consensus of Western civilization is that we only wrestle against flesh and blood. And therefore, we struggle 
to describe that which what we see, which is plainly and clearly evil, we struggle to look at it and say, that's evil. That's evil at work. See if I, our mindset maybe can best be confronted in the novel and the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal Lecter, right, he is this most incredibly evil man. And then there's Officer Starling representing our naivety and our youth and our beauty is the female, young female detective, and she at one point listens to the incredible things that Hannibal Lecter is seething with, and he's saying, and she says something along the lines of this, what, what could have happened that made you like this? What happened to you that you're like this? Now, that is an incredibly modern perspective, that immediately that what we were, she's assuming is that we're fl- fighting against flesh and blood. If there's something biological going on here, something sociological or psychological going on here. And here's how animal, Hannibal Lecter responds. He confronts her saying this. Nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for mere behaviorism. Officer Starling, you have decided that nothing is anybody's own fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to simply look at me and say, I'm evil? And that is a problem that we as Christians are up against. One of the great concerns that I have for my own children is not not that they're going to be affected by t-shirts at Target, but that my children will grow up believing that they have to declare that which is evil good. Or simply trying to ignore it. Romans 15, 31 says that this is actually one of the things that condemns us to another kingdom. Now as Christians, we have given lip service to the idea that there are forces of beings in good and evil. In your lip service, you know that there's something evil. But we have largely, we have dismissed this portion of our life. And let me see if I can give you an example from your own life. In a world that believes, and even a Christian church, yes, that wants you to go to therapy... And it says, if you, if you need to get on medication, get on medication. But if you're struggling with some unwanted mo- emotions or behaviors, what is the first place that we run to now? It has actually become taboo to say there's something spiritual going on here. We look at our brain chemistry, and we blame it on our family systems in which we grew up in. We look at the trauma that was done to us, but so often... We ignore or dismiss the fact that behind all of those things and now living and active in your life today are spiritual forces of evil that must be spiritually engaged with. You say, I believe in evil. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you looked at a friend and simply said, I don't know what's going on, but I feel assaulted by something? If there is an evil presence, do you believe in evil like you believe in the duck-billed platypus? You know it's out there somewhere, but, you know, really, it's fairly irrelevant to your life. Or perhaps, perhaps that's just where evil wants us. As the French poet Charles Baudelaire said, and repeated in the movie Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And perhaps that's where you are. Brothers and sisters, there is an evil empire at work in this world. Not only is Paul saying that there's an evil kingdom, and these are cosmic works in this world, but Paul is also telling us that that evil kingdom is fighting us. It's an all-out war with those powers. And this is the second heading I want to talk about this morning, the war with evil. 
All the language in verses 10 through 13 uses what we'll call martial tones, right? Martial tones, put on armor, take up a sword, pick up a shield. And then he moves on, he says, we are wrestling with cosmic powers. You know, I don't want to wrestle. I don't want to, you know, it's idea, I love the idea of getting, becoming somebody who's like great at jujitsu. You know what I also don't want to do? I don't want to wrestle with sweaty grown men. That's disgusting. That is what is called too intimate, but that is the picture that is being given to us. If there is an intimacy to this battle. If there is a, this is hand-to-hand combat. And then we're told again, put on armor so you can withstand. It's saying that there is a war and you're in it. The kingdom of evil is at war with the kingdom of God. It has always been. Now, the best place, now you have to bear with me here. Again, I'm trying to give you the 10,000-foot view of what is going on, and we'll talk a little bit more of the the devil and the details next week. But the best place where we get a picture of this war happening in the heavenly places is in Revelation chapter 12. Uh Uh-oh, yes, we have to go there. Where in short, it gives us the history, the sneak sneak peek behind all of human history and the spiritual battle that is going on in that history. We're going to pick up in in verse 1. I'm going to read as much of Revelation 12 as I can, but also try to skip some of the stuff that we don't necessarily need to understand this. It said this, A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is Israel or the people of God is being represented here. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Drop down to verse 4. And the dragon, that's the evil one, Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is speaking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in history. And what, how does the dragon seek to devour the child? What happens in the early part of Jesus' life? Herod condemns all children under three to die. And the dragon stood before the woman was about to give birth, and when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So that's behind the scenes of what the birth looks like of Jesus until his ascension. And so Jesus ascends, where it says he's caught up to God and his throne. And this commences a holy and heavenly war, picking up in verse 9. Now war arose in heaven. And Michael, he's the chief angelic angel who serves, still serves God. And his angels are fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so Satan and his kingdom are thrown out of the heavenly places they can no longer have, they have, their voice is not there. And a dragon is mortally wounded, and he is, how shall we say it, angry. And so who gets the anger and the venom of this dragon? Where is it now directed? It says it in verse 17 of Revelation 12. Then the dragon becomes furious with the woman, and he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is that? That's you. That's you. Who gets the serpent wrath? God's people, the church. And Revelation is written to whom? The persecuted church. Now the point of that is to tell the persecuted church. The the church is living here and today where they are facing political and real opposition in their lives. Difficulty and sorrow and pain. And he's saying, here's why. Because what you're in right now is a war. 
This is not an ease into retirement that is called heaven. What you're in is a battle. We live in a world, in a war, and that is the place that you now find yourself. Do you know that? Eugene Peterson said this, the basic nature of history is warfare. Persons who live by faith live in conflict. History is a long sequence of battles, the forces of good and evil in conflict. This is the human condition. To be human is to be at war. And the only question is, for what kingdom are you fighting? You didn't ask to be born into this world war, did you? But this is the place you find yourself. This is the place you find yourself. Gandalf, yeah, when we have to we do these, you know, epics, we have to talk about Lord of the Rings. Because bringing these things to bear. Gandalf, when he's trying to convince King Theoden to mobilize his men, he's saying, you've got to fight. And Theoden has kind of had this, this whisper in his ear that he's lazy. And he won't, he won't do it. And he says, I will not risk open war. And then Aragorn speaks up with this sentence that can be spoken to all of us today. He says this, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. It's there. Whether you homeschool your kids or you send them to public school, whether you send them to private school or not, whether you have your own small business or whether you work for the man, whether you're married or single, it's there. And the call of the church is this, wake up. You cannot wish this away. In fact, you must acknowledge it because the most dangerous place to be is when you're in the middle of a war and you don't realize it. Open wars upon you and the forces of the kingdom of darkness want to destroy you. He, wa- he wants to destroy your home and he wants to destroy your children and he wants to destroy this church and he wants to destroy this city. And he wants to destroy this country. Why does Paul speak of the cosmic powers? Because he doesn't want us to take this lightly. The devil hates you. And he hates all the attempts to make all things new in this world. He hates the church and your marriage and family. And he hates those who are going to go out and serve the poor. And to do evangelism. And seek to bring goodness of God to places like West Georgia. And Southwire. And Carrollton City Schools. And Central High School. And wherever you may go. So you're in a war. And you got to fight. It's not fair. And the devil plays dirty. We don't like it, but it's what we face. You face an evil that seeks to destroy everything that is good in this world. In Paul's characterization, the powers of darkness are powerful, they're wicked, they are cunning, and you are not strong enough to fight them. And so you've been given an impossible task. Isn't that rather difficult to face up to? If you actually, if, you, if I push your face into this, of what you're facing how despairing it actually is. That the evil one, you look at the world and its systems and its structures, school systems, whole businesses, and you're right to go, that's evil, what is being done there. That is wrong. And behind that is no mere men. But there is one who is cunning and is at work. Doesn't that make you just want to hole up in your house and not go out? to protect your kids. In a moment of utter despair, when everything within Frodo wants to give up, Samwise speaks to him and 
in the midst of his misery and despair. When he's facing the full reality and the brunt of the evil that they're up against, he said this, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. But it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really matter, the stories that really matter, they're full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes you didn't want to, you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those are the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to something. So we've given you the 10,000-foot view of the cosmic battle. So here's the question. You're called to go into the battle. What do you cling to in the middle of it? How do you keep going? There's a realm of evil, and it's at war against you, and therefore, what do you cling to? You cling to this truth, that there is a champion over evil. Jesus came into the world to crush the evil one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, it said, was to destroy the works of the devil. He came as a warrior. He came to defeat our enemy. We have an adversary, but we have a greater advocate. And he goes out before you. Side note here. Here's a question though. Why? Why would God, if he is all good and he is all powerful, why did God create a world in which evil could invade it and harm all that God loves? And you know what the answer that we must give? We don't know. We don't know. The definitive answer to that question is we don't know. And you should appreciate that. Because that is the responsible response that is more tolerable and more palatable than someone standing in a children's cancer ward and trying to give you a reason for such evil. Instead, the Bible gives you a promise and it gives you a person. It says, yes, the evil is here, but it will not have the last word. And how do you know that evil will not have the last word? Because God chose to enter into this hellish world Just as the evil one sought to move and work behind the scenes, Jesus entered in from behind the scenes and took on human form. And he allowed evil to then take him and rip him apart. And on the cross, the worst thing that could happen in human history, the killing of the Son of God, and he uses it to bring about the best thing that could happen in the universe, the redemption of all God's people and the destruction of that same evil. You see, Jesus didn't just simply defeat evil. He mocked evil with the way he went about it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It means he stood over them and smack-talked them. Where Jesus did battle with the devil and against the evil powers of this world, where was that? He hurled himself against them, and he defeated them using their own weapons against him. He defeated them using his own bleeding and his own suffering and his own death. At the cross, pain. He used the very weapons of the evil one to destroy them. There is a great war, but a decisive victory has been won. He uses evil's weapons against them. It says this in Revelation chapter 12 that this is comical. It's comical. Because there is this fearsome, what's the image? 
there's this fighting, this fearsome, fire-breathing dragon. And who's he up against? A pregnant woman and a baby. It's the ridiculousness of the gospel. And the dragon looks to devour its prey, and it's, it's slobbering, and it snaps its jaws against that, and he misses. And the, the mom and the baby mock. It says this in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, that God sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord holds the evil forces in derision. And I, I suppose that sometimes, as a part of our worship, laughter should be a part of it. That when we think that we are outmatched, that we look at the battle ahead of us to go, no, 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 no. You have nothing. You have nothing. Now understand this. Revelation chapter 12. Understand where we are. It's trying to make sense of our experience. We have a champion who has broken the back of the evil empire, but the evil empire has not been completely subjected yet. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. You made him a little lower than the angels. That means put him on, on earth. You crowned him with glory and honor, speaking of Jesus, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the world you live in. You have a king, and he has the right to rule, and he is bringing that kingdom to bear in this world. But here's what Revelation 12 says, that the time of the evil one's sway in this world is short. It says this in verse 12, verse 12 of Revelation Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And this means that, yes, you're in a battle, but it means that you can move towards the battle with confidence. We get to mock the forces of evil. That there's a champion who goes out with us You know, Christians like to debate about Halloween and whether we should participate in it. And maybe in our particular cultural context and all the implications of it and what it means, maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. But early Christians, the reason why it was invented, All Souls Day was invented for this reason. It was invented as a pageant to mock Satan. So you know what they would do? They would dress children up as little Satans. And you ever wondered why those churches and those grand cathedrals with all their beauty and their grandeur on the outside of them had those awful gargoyles? What's the point of that? Well, the same reason. It's, it's a mocking of the evil spirits. We are not afraid of you. We can walk through this world with confidence because we have a champion who goes before us. And he goes in us. And so here's what this is saying. We'll close. We'll get to more of it next week. Paul speaking to the church in Revelation, the seven churches there that are all facing various forms of persecution and Sardis and Pergamum and Ephesus. And and Revelation says this, yes, you're in a battle, but not long now. Not long now. You will see your king come. And so Revelation comes to the church of today in Nigeria and Khartoum and Kabul and in North Korea and says not long now. Not long now. And Revelation comes to the Christian entering places of business where the evil one has convinced the powers that be that the almighty dollar is king and you see the, the effects of King Mammon sucking the light out of your friends and your coworkers. And you feel it in yourself and Revelation looks at you and says, keep going, keep fighting, not long now. 
And Revelation says that the believing student and the campus outreach staff person who is fighting all sorts of battles in that place and walking on that campus to engage in the fight and you can feel weary and worn and sick and Revelation says, not long now. Keep fighting. And Revelation comes to the lonely, the widow and the orphan. And the, he says, fight the good fight to believe and trust in the midst of your sorrows and the lies of the evil one who seeks to leverage your loneliness to convince that you are loveless. And Revelation says, not long now. And to the mom and dad who are distressed and grieving over the state of their home or the state of their marriage and they're exhausted by the battle with the kingdom of evil for their child's heart, they look up and they say, not long now. He is coming. He has come. He has broken the back of the evil one. And he is on the move. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray and let's go to the table. If you're serving, I invite you to come up. Worship team and elders are going to be all in the front row here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we're a small people, and we are a weak people, that when we, when, we, when we try to fight, it sounds kind of like a pipsqueak, our voice cracks, and our muscles are weak. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come and you would fill us by your Spirit, that you would convince us of the truth of, of your victory. Well, I pray that we would not try. We would not just stick our hands in the, our heads in the sand. That we would not just try to to walk in and think that we are um, dealing with a knife fight when in reality the evil one's bringing a gun. Lord, give us a, a true and reverent fear of what we're up against. But Lord, would you only do so in such a way that we move towards you in greater trust and greater affection? And so, Lord, as we come to this table, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you'd strengthen us by this bread and by this cup, that, Lord, you would strengthen us for the battle that we, we go back into this afternoon and tomorrow, that you'd strengthen our right hand so that we may be a light for the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.